Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome to Brexit Unspun. This is where we debunk the political spin around Brexit. I'm Shona Jenkins. Fears about immigration, whipped up by the tabloid press, were a prime reason why many Britons voted to leave the European Union. Were these fears justified, and if so, will Brexit solve the problem? To answer these questions, I'm joined by Helen Worrell, public policy correspondent, and James Blitz, our Whitehall editor. First, let's go back 18 months and take a look at the pro-Brexit campaign slogans. Perhaps the most notorious example was the famous UKIP poster showing a long queue of Middle Eastern refugees with the banner headline, Breaking Point, and underneath the words, We must break free of the EU and take back control of our borders. James, could you give us a flavour of some of the arguments used by politicians and the media for and against immigration? Yes, ever since the referendum campaign... The argument has basically gone like this. Those in favour of controlling free movement from the EU have basically said two things. The first is that our arrangement with the EU, free movement, means that there is an unlimited number of Europeans that can come to this country and that successive governments have had no control over those flows. And the second thing that they have argued is that because we do not have any control over those flows, we create a situation in which we are unable to control what is called net migration, the difference in the number of people going out and coming into the country, and the people coming in put significant pressure on public services. That is the argument that has been made. The argument on the other side, made by those who say, well, actually, this is all overblown, is that, first of all, This idea of there being a free-flowing group is not really true. We have significant controls, first of all, over people from outside the EU who want to come into this country. So the argument that was made, for example, in the referendum that there could be an unlimited flow of people from Turkey, which is outside the EU, into this country was wrong. And also that the pressure on public services is really not that great. The vast majority of EU nationals who come to the UK are young people. They are not a significant burden on services like the National Health Service or the Welfare system. They're net contributors to our tax system. And therefore, actually, this is really rather overblown. We do have pressures on public services, but actually they come from the indigenous, rather aging population. So that very broadly is the set of arguments that have been made since the referendum campaign of a year and a half ago. Right, Helen, what are the facts on immigration to the UK? Could you give us a picture of the annual figures, where people come from, what the government has done in recent years to stem the flow? Sure. Well, net migration to the UK is currently around 250,000, which is lower than it has been for the past three years, but is still significantly two and a half times higher than the government's target figure of the tens of thousands. Now, what's interesting is that until recently, long-term migration was split fairly evenly between EU migrants and arrivals from outside Europe. 
But what we saw in the most recent figures was a sharp reduction in net migration from EU nationals, which has fallen by nearly a third post-Brexit, or at least post the Brexit referendum. Now, obviously, the problem has been up until now, ministers were completely unable to do anything to stem the flow of migration from the EU. So the only thing they could do to reduce net migration was to cut down on non-EU migration. So the way they went about this was by toughening up visas for skilled workers and for international students and making it much harder for non-EU nationals to come and join their family members in Britain. Would you say these policies have been successful? Well, success has been limited and I think the argument that universities and employers would make is that restrictions on non-EU migrants have actually made very little dent in the overall net migration figures, but at the same time they've had quite a damaging effect on the UK's ability to attract the most talented people from abroad and to boost our education exports. Has the government given us any clues about what the immigration rules for EU migrants will be after Brexit? Well, the Home Office has actually said very little. What we do know is that there will be an ESTA scheme for EU tourists, which will work very much like the current system that UK nationals use to go to the US. And at the same time, there will be a work permit scheme for skilled EU workers. And in addition, there are likely to be some sort of fixed-term youth mobility visas for low-skilled sectors such as construction and hospitality. The main question, um, and the thing that we still don't really know very much about, is whether EU migrants will be treated the same as non-EU migrants in the immigration system, and if not, to what extent they're given some sort of preferential treatment over those coming from outside Europe. I think, generally speaking, the government has been very vague. I think one of the reasons why that has happened is I think that there's quite a lot of disappointing information that the government is ultimately going to have to give the British public. First of all, it's not going to be possible to introduce significant controls at the moment of departure in March 2019. Helen is the expert, but I do not believe that the Home Office, the immigration system in the UK, could possibly process a new system of checks that quickly. That is something that is going to have to be rolled out over time. And secondly, nothing very much can be done either until you have worked out how you are going to identify and certificate the three million EU nationals who are already in the country. And of course, the deal that is done between the EU and the UK on the status of EU nationals here and the status of British expatriates living in Europe is absolutely critical to the negotiations. So we clearly are going to get some kind of work permit system. It's clearly a system that is going to give a priority towards more highly skilled people. But the precise details of it, when it's going to be implemented, all that is still vague. And that is an enormous, I don't know if you would agree, Helen, disappointment to British business, which urgently, urgently needs certainty on this topic. Yes, I think employers are really appealing to the government for clarity on this. And what has been interesting is that there has been absolutely no information on this topic coming out since the referendum. Now, if we could just go back to a point you mentioned, James, the EU citizens in the UK and UK citizens in Europe, how will they be affected by Brexit? And what are the politicians saying about this? 
Well, a deal has got to be done on this between the UK and the EU. And what we know so far is that this is something that both sides want to address very early in the negotiations. And they both agree on that. But it's a very difficult dossier. This is not just about residency rights, first of all. It's also about the long-term access to health care, to benefits, the right to bring family members who might be outside the EU into the UK. There are lots of complex issues there. A really difficult issue that needs to be resolved is which judicial body is going to supervise those rights. If you were, for example, an EU national living in this country and you felt that the Home Office had dealt with some aspect of your residency badly or some UK agency had dealt with you badly, the EU is saying you should have the right to take that to the European Court of Justice. The British are saying, no, that is something you should only be allowed to take to the UK Supreme Court. That is actually probably the biggest dividing line between the two. So I think there's a general sense that a deal will be done on this and that other aspects of the negotiation, notably, for example, how much the British have to pay into the EU budget, are more difficult. But nonetheless, this has turned out to be a little bit thornier than people had imagined and EU nationals are going to have to wait. I think I would go a little bit further than James here. I think... Some lawyers have actually raised the prospect that this whole issue is so difficult that it may be the thing that is not sorted out until after Brexit. And the reason for that is that the system organising the benefits and welfare rights of migrants in European countries could be so complicated that individual EU member states may have to ratify those rights rather than those rights being agreed by the Commission as part of a Brexit negotiation. That's very interesting to hear. I have to say, if that were the case, I think it would be devastating for UK-based employers from everything I hear. I don't know if you would agree, but this is something that really worries business leaders in the UK, people working in public services, universities. This worries them more than any other aspect, I think, of Brexit. Whatever business or sector they may be in, this flow of EU nationals out of the country appears to be accelerating. The difficulty of finding EU citizens to come to the country appears to be getting much more difficult than the government appears to realise. I don't know if you would agree with that. I absolutely agree. The latest net migration figures show that there has been this exodus of EU nationals and specifically those from Eastern European countries. I would add just to what Jane said that it's not only employers who are worried about this, it's EU nationals themselves who are living in the UK with an enormous amount of ongoing uncertainty. Some of them, we know, at least 100,000 so far, have taken the step of filling in this 85-page form requesting permanent residence in the UK. The others appear to be either in the process of doing that. We don't know whether they've done it yet because it hasn't yet come out in the figures, but they're either doing that or they're just waiting to see what agreement will be made. But in the meantime, it must be the case that for those people, their future in the UK and the future of their rights in the UK are very much in doubt. So finally, James and Helen, what you're describing sounds a little bit like what the people who voted Leave actually wanted. I think actually a lot of people who voted Leave would have expected maybe a much quicker and more clear resolution to a lot of these immigration issues than they will eventually get. James, do you agree? Well, I think if one looks back over the referendum... Brexit has wanted different things. Some people were much more concerned about the question of sovereignty, of Britain having its own laws, than of the question of borders. So there were different views on that. 
I certainly agree with Helen. This is going to take much longer and be much more complicated than people think. I don't think one can overstate how much damage this uncertainty is doing to Britain's reputation in Europe and more widely and how much uncertainty it's creating for Europeans living in this country and the consequent damage it is going to do to various sectors of the economy, in particular public services like the health service and also the university sector and many of the areas that require high-skilled workers. This is an area that people are probably more concerned about in British business than any other right now. And we will be looking at some of these issues in future episodes. Well, thank you, Helen and James, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week for another unvarnished look at what Brexit will mean for Britain's trade, economy, public institutions and private sector. We hope you'll join us then, and we'd be delighted in the meantime if you wanted to review or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you download. You can also email us at brexitunspun, that's all one word, at ft.com if you have a question or would like to suggest a topic for future episodes. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.